I'm Kate Northrup. And I'm Mike Watts. And we're partners in life, love, and business. Welcome to the Kate and Mike Show, where we share insights and interviews on entrepreneurship, relationships, parenting, self-actualization, and making a life, not just a living. Hey there, welcome to the Kate and Mike Show. This is Kate. This is Mike. Today we are joined by Akshay Nanavanti, who I, we had the pleasure of meeting last year in New York City when we flew down for about 14 hours to be on a live stream with Marie Forleo talking about being a B-schooler. And Akshay and I sat on the couch next to each other at Marie TV's studio, and I was ginormously pregnant. And he was such a cool guy, and he told me about his work, and he told me that his book had been endorsed by the Dalai Lama, which we should have asked him on the podcast how that happened. But he's, yeah, do you want to talk a little bit about his background, Mike? Yes. So he actually was born in India and then came to New Jersey. and Texas, Austin. Was it Austin? Yeah. But he lives in Jersey. He goes in Jersey now. No. Yeah. And then he, so his family came over when he was 14 years old, I believe. And he is a fascinating guy. That's all I have to say. This is a fascinating interview. Some of the stuff that he has done, he over, he was addicted to drugs. He ended up being a Marine. Like he was one of the Marines that would go out and search for, this was in Afghanistan, for minefields, basically looking for mines. He would be walking ahead of the whatever. Yeah. Machinery. Yeah. He explains it. I'm not 100% sure. But basically he was in war, right? And so he was talked about being at war. And then since then he has, he left his corporate job to drag a 190 pound sled 350 miles across the world's second largest polar ice cap. He swam through underwater caves, almost been killed by a falling boulder while glacier caving, experienced severe altitude sickness while climbing in the Himalayas, suffered through heat exhaustion while running across countries. Uh, His greatest struggle came many years after the war, though. He was diagnosed with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, and, and struggled with depression and alcohol addiction that drove to the brink of suicide. So then he spent years neuroscience, psychology, and spirituality studying, studying. Not to only heal his own brain, but figure out what does it take to live a happy, successful, meaningful life. And he created uh, Fearvana, and that's what it's really about. He defines Fearvana as the bliss that results from engaging our fears to pursue our own worthy struggle. He has a book. um, As Kate said, it's been endorsed by the Dalai Lama. And it's called Fearvana. It's called Fearvana. He also has a foundation. All all of the sales of Fearvana go to supporting the foundation. He just finished running across the entire country of Liberia. Yeah, he did basically a marathon a day for a week. So this guy is fascinating. And this was a really interesting conversation because I have to tell you, his approach to life is almost exactly opposite to mine. So his way is not the do less way. And yet we found a lot of commonality. We had an interesting conversation or like, yeah, we had a we had a conversation about struggle. He really goes out and seeks to add struggle into his life on purpose. For example, he'll talk about running 50 miles in the middle of the night in pitch black around in a circle on a third of a mile track. Like why would he do such a thing? And <laughs> And I, you know, I shared my perspectives on struggle and that life is hard enough. And and I think that the duality between the two really speaks to the fact that there is no one truth and that we can all live our lives the way we want to. And I'm just so blown away by Akshay's enthusiasm and the way he has gone after life, especially after going through circumstances that would have left many people not going after Mm -hmm. life, which he speaks about. And he's really transparent about his struggles and he seems to have nothing to hide. And that was inspiring. Yeah. And we talked about his preparation to go sit in silence for, no, he's going to go sit in complete blackness for, was that a week or 10 days? It's a silent, dark retreat. Yes. So not like a silent retreat. A lot of people go to silent retreats, but this is complete Darkness. Darkness. So he he takes everything to the next level, and you'll hear about that in the interview. Anyway, this guy's cool. Check him out. Enjoy. Welcome to the Kate and Mike show. We're so happy to have you. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. 
Yeah. So, all right. You recently, relatively recently, got back from a kind of a crazy adventure where you ran 167 miles, basically a marathon a day over the stretch of how many days? Over a week. So just under a marathon week. Per week. In yeah. Liberia. In Liberia, yeah. Okay. So what would compel you to do such a thing? <laughs> yeah. So I ran across the entire country because I was actually going there for two weeks to do various humanitarian work out there with this group called Awakening Giants. They were filming a documentary. We were going to do humanitarian work out there. So since I was going there anyway, I thought, why not run across the country as one does? What else are you going to do, right? <laughs> but we so were, many other we going- things. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I was like, okay, why not run across? But, <laughs> but we were going there to also build a school to help build the first sustainable school in post-war Liberia. So I wanted to use my run because running is one of my vehicles of service. It's saved my life from the darkest corners of my soul. So now I use it as a tool of service. So I use my run to help raise funds for the school. And of course, it had my own incredible, very, very powerful spiritual experiences throughout the journey as well. But we raise a lot of money because when you do an event, it brings people along the journey, right? We were telling stories throughout the event. And as a result, my nonprofit raised over $10,000 in like in the few weeks from between the run and after the run in our first quarter of active fundraising to help build a school and do some work after that as well. So it was a very powerful experience. Why did you choose Liberia? This group that I was going with, they do various things around in different countries. So they actually, right now, as we speak, they're in New Zealand. They had done some things in uh, like one in San Diego. I think they did one in Costa Rica or somewhere like that. I can't remember a few other countries, but Liberia was the one that appealed to me the most because it's a country that's gone through a great deal of suffering. They've gone through 15 years or 14, 15 years of a brutal civil war. They've gone through Ebola struggling with intense poverty. I believe it's one of the poorest countries in the world. And experiencing humanity at that level is very powerful. I mean, when I was there, we, like one of the pieces of humanitarian work we were doing was teaching workshops and with the whole group that I was with and each one kind of taught on our own topic. And mine was about how to find the gift in fear and suffering and embrace your pain. Now I was speaking to people in my class who were former child soldiers the suffering that they've been through was intense. Like you cannot imagine. Most of us could not fathom it. Spoke to women who had been raped spoke to people who had lost family in the war, people going through intense poverty, you know, and sharing this with them was incredibly intense and incredibly powerful. I spoke to people who are drug addicts in the ghetto and one of these kids, you know, who had been a child soldier as well. And I still remember to this day, the way he looked at me in the eye with pain in his eyes and said, the past is dangerous. And he was using these drugs to run away from the pain. So something about just seeing humanity at that intense level versus going to like first world country like New Zealand, you know, was alluring to me. I think you, you, you see something different when you tap into the human experience at that intensity. So that's a very powerful story. And when you're there teaching a workshop about fear and how to find, and I mean, essentially how to find the gift in your, how did you describe it? I don't want to put words in your mouth. How to find the gift in pain and suffering. How to find the gift in pain and suffering. And you're there with people who have experienced things that are the depths of which we would not wish on our worst enemy. Mm-hmm. How do you do that? How do you hold, like if you have an ex- well, and I don't know your whole story. So maybe we need to back up and hear your story to know how you can show up and have the capacity to sure. be there, to go in that space with people and not be right. Because like, I feel like in the spiritual world, there's this feeling of, yeah, okay, of course there's a gift in our deepest pain and suffering, but to show up in that environment, to say that, I think it really requires a depth yeah. of human experience that many people have not had. So mm-hmm. let's back it up and mm-hmm. talk about how you even got to teaching that particular subject. Sure, sure, yeah. I've been blessed to have experienced, and I say it intentionally, I've been blessed to have experienced a great deal of struggle in life, which allowed me to be in this place. So my journey, I was born in India, moved to the US at 13, and initially, you know, I was born with that silver spoon, great family, loving home, money, all that kind of thing. You know, I mean, my parents went super well off at the time, but well off, and uh, moved to Austin. At about 13, got into drugs very heavily, for about a year and a half, squandered my life with drugs. I used to cut my arm. I have all these cuts on my arm, burns on my arm from burning myself with cigars. I almost lost my life. I mean, I lost two friends to drug addiction and was headed down that path myself. 
Thankfully, I got out. I then enlisted in the Marines, despite two doctors telling me that Marine Corps boot camp would kill me because of a blood disorder I was born with. I nonetheless, obviously, not only survived, but I thrived. I graduated infantry school as the honor graduate of my platoon. And that's when I started to find the beauty in struggle, in pain, in suffering, in fear, because Marine boot camp and Marine training is intense, right? So I started doing other things. I went mountain climbing, cave diving, skydiving, ice diving. I fractured four bones in three months from rock climbing and skydiving. And I went climbing in a cast anyway, you know? So I get all these intense experiences and then in 2007, I was sent to Iraq and as an infantry Marine. So like among many other jobs, one of my jobs out there was to walk in front of vehicle convoys to look for improvised explosive devices before they could be used to blow up our vehicles. So somewhat dangerous job, right? Because again, if somebody's going to get blown up first, it would be this guy. <laughs> so you learn how to navigate fear, navigate suffering, you know, that taught me a lot. And then when I came back from the war, I really struggled. I had lost a friend in the war before I even left. I struggled with the fact that I had come back. I didn't get shot, I didn't lose a limb. And I felt like what right did I have to be here, to be happy, to even be alive when so many others had suffered more than me. You know, so I uh, was diagnosed with PTSD, struggled with depression, struggled with alcoholism. I got to a point that I was downing liters of vodka. I would drink until I pass out, wake up and drink again for five days straight. And so one morning after five days of this, I woke up and I pictured myself walking over to the kitchen, picking up a knife and ending my life. And that was one of the darkest moments, as you might imagine. So coming out of that is when I started researching neuroscience, psychology, spirituality to heal myself initially. And then that led me to the deeper quest of how do we all navigate suffering to live a happier and more meaningful life. That's what led me then to my book, Fear of Anna, and ultimately helping people turn fear and struggle at a larger level into bliss and enlightenment. And now everything I, everything I do with my work, it's all around this concept of fear of honor, writing the book and then even these workshops, everything is around that concept. So I've been blessed to really go through that roller coaster, and that's why I could relate to people in that classroom, like the child soldiers. I mean, I hadn't experienced anything like what they had, but they could relate because they know that I'd you know, been to war, been through this journey, been through addiction, depression, PTSD, on the verge of suicide. And as a result, it's taught me a lot about life. you know. And then after I sobered up, I got a divorce and my wife was battling her demons and she decided to move into a meditation ashram and no right or wrong. It was her journey, but I broke my sobriety and I really struggled with that. I don't blame her. I take responsibility for my actions, but that was really, really tough. And once again, though, the beauty was that I got, I was blessed to experience a new kind of suffering. And right after that, ironically, I had three different women reach out to me saying that they had just gone through a divorce. How do we handle that? And the thing is like, now I can tap into that. I can relate to it, right? So every new suffering leads to a new awakening. And yes, I broke my sobriety, but it led me to something so much more beautiful on the other side of that, you know? And so this journey has allowed me to speak in places like that where people can relate and people can say, oh, this guy's seen a bit of life. <laughs> and so you can help people when, you can, when you've gone through those jour that journey, you know? Do you think that in order to help people, we have to suffer? I don't think we have to. Absolutely not. <laughs> you know, like there's obviously, obviously there's a lot of people who haven't necessarily gone through that, uh, that level, but everybody's got their own struggles. Everybody's got some struggles. So the thing is though, that we, I mean, I'm sure you can relate even in a business, nobody wants to hear how awesome you are all the time, right? They want to hear your journey. What's the struggle you've gone through to achieve the other end of that struggle. And everybody's gone through it in some capacity. So it's not a necessity, but I think that sharing our struggles allow people to connect with us. It creates that space for authenticity, for vulnerability, for connection. This is on a human level and even as a business level. I mean, my business has grown because I'm able to share my story. And truth be told, I wasn't able to share my story like this a long time ago because I felt like I wasn't worthy of this story. I mean, I felt like I don't have a right to talk about being a veteran because I haven't suffered enough in the war. And until a friend helped me realize that your story is not yours. It's about the people whose lives you touch. And so it's on you to get out of your own stuff in your own head <laughs> to share your story because it's not just your story. It's about the lives you can touch with it. But yeah, it was a long time for me to even feel okay with sharing myself as a veteran and everything I've been through. You yeah. don't have to, but I think, I think it allows you to connect in whatever struggle you way you've been through to answer that question. <laughs> Absolutely. No, that's a great answer. No, go ahead. No. You have another no. I mean, of course I have a okay. million. <laughs> There's a lot I'm of I'm giving you here. an opening. You are a fast talker. You're a fast talker. <laughs> I, get, I get excited I'm when I... I'm a fast I... talker, but like, nope. I am like, wow, you get a lot of information in. in I, get, a short I get fired up when I talk, yeah. <laughs> when I do public I do slow down, but in conversations, I get fired up and it just lights me up. So It's great. I love it. I'm kind of all over now since, you know, my marriage ended now. I mean, currently in India, but I go back and forth between India and Jersey. My current U.S. base is still Jersey. 
Jersey. And so back and forth between there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I knew you travel because when we were, we, we've been trying to book this for a long time. I got sick. <laughs> got sick. You know, the whole. And the, I think kids got oh, sick. Really. You got guys, sick. and there were there was yeah. there were a lot of things there going on. The... But I always <laughs> trust that when it ha- when it lands on the schedule and actually happens, Absolutely. it's the perfect timing for the conversation. Absolutely. <laughs> so, what is the desire for, you know, running an ultra runner, you know, rock climbing, ice climbing, yeah. diving? I think you said. Um, <laughs> It's like, these are very extreme things. Yeah. Right? So like, where is it that, because I, as an addict, right, you have addic- addictions and right now it's like addiction is the alt is the extreme sport thing. So where, yeah. like, what drives to that direction instead of, you know, let's go walk for five miles and, but you're like, <laughs> let's go run across the country. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, ultimately I've channeled and embraced the, the, the addictive nature of myself. You know, I've realized that I'm never going to be a sort of like a, a very chill person. I'm very intense. I experience very, I still experience very intense lows. And as a result, I experience very intense highs. You know, like I was talking to my dad about this recently. He's very chill. He's always very Zen. He's always going to be a level of contentment, you know, very successful in the only way, but that works for him. For me, I have to channel it into this intense way. It works for me. And truth be told is, you know, for a long time, even the positive things I was doing, like running and skiing across an ice cap for a month where I dragged like a 190 pound sled for 350 miles, these were things I was doing to run away from myself. So sometimes, unless you really practice that self-awareness, that reflection, that stillness, even the positive things can be a way to run away from yourself. So I still do the same things, but I'm doing it from a very different place of consciousness. So now I'm not running away from myself, but I think that these are my paths to my own bliss and my own enlightenment. That's why I take everything to that level. You know, I'm not going to just run a marathon. I'll run ultra marathons. It, like it's, it's me at my finest. It's how I tap into my potential. I think that the divinity, the greatness of people is to shine at our highest level. And this is my ability to push myself. So running for me is just my outlet. It saved my life. I mean, again, that's how I got out of that brink of suicide. And when I'm not pushing it at level, I just get into a bad space. So, you know, some people have said, are you just channeling one addiction to the other? And I'm like, yeah, but that's not a bad thing. <laughs> some people have kind of framed it as that's a, is that a negative? I don't think it is. It, it absolutely works for me. It makes me driven in my business, driven as an athlete. And I, I love it. I mean, even now stillness is still one of my greatest fears. So I'm actually engaging it in probably the most extreme way you can think of in a few months, I'm going to a darkness retreat where I'm going to be in pitch darkness, seven days, blackness, like can't see your hand in front of you, blackness for a week and darkness and silence. Because I was thinking about doing one of those silent retreats, like a Vipassana type thing. But when I stumbled into the concept of a darkness retreat, I was like, of course, I'm going to do the most extreme version possible. So now I'm going into darkness and silence for a week. It terrifies me because stillness is a great fear of mine. It's still something I, I struggle with. So I figured why not leap headfirst into stillness in uh, darkness. <laughs> well rested after just sleep the whole time. Maybe. You could just sleep the whole yeah. time. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I've heard. I've actually, I've actually have heard that some people just sleep for the two days because most of us are in some degree of sleep debt, right? So, which I probably can relate to. I mean, so, uh, but after that, you seven can... marathons, you're definitely tired. <laughs> Someone could use some rest exactly a while ago now but even just the lifestyle right of an entrepreneur and also living between countries that are halfway across the world i mean you're probably tired so this sounds like a great idea and still training i mean yeah i'm excited because it'll be yeah i'll get some rest for sure and i still like still struggle with it because i'm running 50 50, i just did my first 50 miler like a week and a half ago you know i did it all night around a tiny loop in my building to add the elements of darkness monotony and sleep deprivation so I did that while I'm building my business. So one thing now I do to like make my, to make running hundred mile weeks in business work is I do all my phone calls while I run. So yeah. I talk to my teams. I do WhatsApp call with clients. Like while I run, every call is while I run, unless it's like an interview like this. So I don't and talk to anybody otherwise. <laughs> you just let them know ahead of time. Like I'll be out of breath. Just yeah. So, so they're, like now people who know me are kind of used to it. But the other day somebody called for the speaking event in Seattle and I was like panting. She was like, are you running right now? I'm like, yeah. She's like, do you want me to call later? I'm like, no, don't worry. This is just how I do my calls. So Wait, they find a little weird. In your building? <laughs> yeah. It was like a tiny loop in my building here in India. So it was like literally like what? Like a point two mile loop all night around this little loop because it adds monotony and it forces you to engage what happens up in your mind. And that's a fascinating and terrifying journey. <laughs> Are you planning on running in the dark at the darkness retreat? Is that why you're practicing running in the dark? 
No, that was just because um, I want to do 100 miles. Darkness Retreat would literally be just sitting in the room for darkness, uh, you know. That time okay. I actually want to just practice being still. <laughs> okay, yeah. I was just checking. I don't know. I thought maybe they were doing more related. <laughs> that would be hard. No, no, I mean, I'm planning on a 100 miler and I have bigger, like I'm going to be running 400 miles across Uganda to help with another school in September. So the training is continuing yeah. for that and much bigger runs planned after that. So continuing the training, but the darkness will be management. separate. I love the time management strategy of taking all your calls while running. I think that's amazing. So what terrifies you about the stillness? Awesome question. I love that. It terrifies me because when you are so still, you have to engage a lot of your demons. You have to engage everything that shows up. And I've spent a lot of time doing that. Like I have navigated my demons. I've embraced my demons. Like now, for example, my survivor's guilt, I still feel it. But I have this picture of my friend that I lost up in the war up on my wall. And it says, this should have been you earn this life. So I've learned to make my demons work for me. And I'm really good though at the doing, like I'm really driven. Like I'm good at, you know, working on my business running, but stillness is still a gap. And so I feel like the only way to like attain the next stage of evolution is to push into some great fear. And I think what just terrifies me is just the not doing like what, what's going to happen if I'm not working on something, what's going to show up. And I don't know, you know, like there's so many unknowns. And that's, I think also another reason it terrifies me is stillness is kind of an act of surrender. I'm a huge control freak, right? Like, I mean, I'm controlling my fate, my destinies in my hands. With stillness, there's nothing to control. You just gotta be, you just gotta surrender. And that's, that surrender is exactly the opposite of control and that terrifies me. But I think that that's also what's exciting is because I think it will lead me to new places that I haven't gone before in the doing, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. I just, can you repeat, because it broke up slightly the words that you said, and I just want to make sure for the person listening that they heard what you said, the words you said that are on the picture of your friend who you lost. Mm -hmm. It says, this should have been you earn this life. Got it. And that really guides me through some, some, uh, it's a beautiful thing to actually tap into your demons. Like as an example of that, when I was in Liberia on, I think it was day four or day three of my run, it was about 17, 18 miles in. And I had this aching pain on my shin just, just hit me, like stopped running. And I stopped, I tried to put some cream on it, massaged it, you know, did everything I could. It wasn't going away. So I started limping for about a mile, mile and a half navigating again, not just the physical pain, but the psychological pain that I still have a long way to go. And uh, then I started jogging slowly. And soon I just started sprinting. And for the last five miles of the day, before I hit 25 miles, it was the fastest five miles that I ran the entire trip. And the whole time I was saying things to myself, like you shouldn't even be alive, earn this life. People have died out there. People are suffering. Who are you to complain? If you quit now, you deserve a coward's death. And I realize these are intense things to say to yourself, but it's like I was engaging my demons of that feeling that I haven't suffered enough to make it work for me. You know, Carl Jung puts it beautifully. I absolutely love this quote. He says, one does not become enlightened by imaging figures of light. One becomes enlightened by making the darkness conscious. Yeah. And so we're, we're scared to run into the darkness, right? It's scary, of course, because it is hard. But it was when I was running away from my demons, running away from that guilt that led me to alcohol, that led me to some, you know, just some dark places because everybody told me, don't feel guilt, you know, don't feel guilty. What I came to learn throughout that whole journey is that there's no bad or good emotions. There's only emotions. And any emotion can be useful if you choose to make it work for you from that higher place of your consciousness, your divine self, whatever you want to call it ultimately. Like, why do you feel like the picture of your friend who died at war, that this should have been you? So when I first en enlisted in the Marines, uh, him and me were in the same unit together and we were volunteered to go to war every chance we could have got, every chance we got, right? Twice the Marines told us that we were going and then last minute they would cancel it. Now, when we would train together, because we came very close, we would do everything together, but I would always beat him by a few points. Like I would beat him on the rifle range by a few points. I beat him by a run by a few seconds. So when, when like one summer while I was vacationing here in India, he ended up finding a unit to go with. And because he was a good Marine, he got promoted to corporal. And as a result, he was in a seat that was hit with an IED and he was killed. So I always felt like if I had gone with him and I wasn't off vacationing, I should have been the one who got promoted to corporal. And it should have been me that should have been in that seat. And it should have been me that died. Now, rationally, I get that, you know, the war is unpredictable. I could have gone with him and he could have still died. I could have still come home. I get it rationally, but emotionally it doesn't change the fact that I felt like I had no right to be off vacationing because we were volunteering to go together all the time. And then like just one, that one summer I happened to be, you know, I happened to have left to come visit family in India. And he ended up finally finding a unit to go with the third time. And so it, it always tore me up. I mean, I still remember he called me while he was in training once after I got back from India 
And I happened to be standing with my girlfriend at the time. And he always used to mess with me that, you know, you didn't volunteer with me because you have this girlfriend or you're busy right now. And it wasn't true, but it obviously triggered my guilt. Right. So I remember one day where he called and I saw his name on my phone and I didn't answer it. I was standing with my girlfriend at the time. And so I didn't want to deal with him messing with me and never got to speak to him again. Hmm. So that stuff stays with you. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if you're going to, so you're, I was just, as you were talking, I wrote down the phrase running in the dark and I think we'll just call this podcast that, but should you ever decide to, I mean, I feel like that's what you're talking about here when you brought mm. up the Carl Jung quote, really mm. like how, so somebody's listening to this and they're thinking, wow, this guy's intense. <laughs> he's yeah he's really like he's really <laughs> you are really operating at a level of like i am gonna do this and i'm i'm all in right so how do we let's say i'm just gonna speak for myself i haven't had as direct experiences of let's say drug addiction or, you know, or alcohol addiction or going to war. I've had my own traumas for sure. But that darkness and allowing our demons to kind of become part of us and allowing them to fuel us to the, to the light, like you talked about, how do we dip in and allow ourselves to connect with that part of ourselves, especially if it's not part of our daily reality of grappling with, I mean, we're all grappling with demons on a daily reality. Let's be honest. (laughs) But like, what do you walk walk people through? Like, let's say in your book, Fear of Anna or work. No, it's a love the question. I think, you know, there's two ways. One we've kind of touched on is stillness. Because we're living in a world where we're never being still, you know, we're constantly distracted with our phones, with iPod, with music, something or the other. Even if we're like, especially entrepreneurs, like we have so much to do in our business, right? There's always work to be done. But that time for stillness is invaluable. Taking that time, like, well, I learned this one exercise from an ultra cyclist friend of mine. What he does is he would just sit still staring into a wall. So no painting even, like obviously no TV, no music, but not even a painting. So no stimuli. And he would do this for up to 12 hours. I think he even said 24 hours. And then he'd go riding for that same amount of time. So you're just sitting still with your mind. And when you do that, your mind will take you places that you're not even ready for. But we're running away from that because it's scary. So one way to engage these demons is just to be still. Like be still with yourself and see who you're with. That's why I'm engaging stillness because that's harder for me. The other way is to push yourself beyond what you think is possible. So like when engage suffering, when you seek out suffering, obviously running is my vehicle to suffer. It will force you to get to a point that you, uh, that, like if, one, if you get to a point where one party you wants to quit and the other wants to fight and you tap into those spaces, you'll find something. You will find something there. <laughs> and when you rise above that, when you rise above that moment where you want to quit, where everything just feels awful, you will find something so great within. So another way to really engage the demons, and I think in access, not just the demons, but the access point to even that divinity, because I think your demons can be a tool to access your divinity, is to go suffer. Like push yourself. It doesn't have to be physical. It, I mean, exercise is one of the best ways to do it, because barring any serious physical injuries, anybody can do it, right? Also, just neurologically, exercise has been shown to improve the brain. One scientist calls it miracle growth for the brain. So neurologically, it's the best way to, to kind of enhance the brain as well. But I think it's the best way to tap into the mind, body, and spirit as well. So go ahead and suffer and you learn something about yourself that you're not present to. And as you keep pushing that line, you'll keep discovering so much more than so much more of yourself than you ever thought possible. When you're talking about being in a physical situation where you want to quit and it's tremendously uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about giving birth and I'm wondering, because I've done that twice and it's Mm. a lot. And so I'm wondering, (laughs) do you think that now some women, you know, don't have kids because they chose to, or they're not able to or whatever. So, but for women who have given birth, I'm curious, and I, I don't know that you can really answer this question. So I'm just asking from, you know, just <laughs> supposing like, yeah. I, I wonder, I have to be honest, I struggle with this idea of bringing struggling into our lives on purpose, because I feel like life is really hard anyway. 
So like, okay, so I gave birth twice and it was really hard and I didn't quit because you can't because the baby's coming out and like, it's not like being on a run, right? Like you just like, it's, I can't even describe it. But anyway, I did find parts of myself that, I mean, because you have to birth yourself as a mother while you're birthing the children Mm -hmm. and that's like a whole other thing. But what about, I'm curious for you, what about pleasure? What about like, where do you bring pleasure into your life? And is that part of your framework? Yeah, I've struggled with play, uh, believe it or not. <laughs> <laughs> this is not surprising. <laughs> no, no way. No. <laughs> I know, who would have thunk it? <laughs> so I have struggled with the concept of play a little bit more. And I've started to embrace it a little bit more now. And what I've realized is, though, that like you can engage play and suffering in, in you can kind of unite the two. So I've actually kind of embraced this concept that I call singular duality. So the idea is that in life, there are all these dualities, right? Like play and suffering, ego and humility, contentment and discontentment, demons and divinity, life and death, being and doing, right? So there's all these dualities. And often we demonize one side of the duality. So if we talk about fear and nirvana, which will lead to nirvana, fear is the enemy or ego and humility, ego is the enemy or discontentment, contentment, we should never be discontent, contentment. So we always put one side as the good side, right? And what I've come to realize is if you explore a duality that's causing you friction and push yourself into the other end of the duality, you can actually find something beautiful within. So what I mean by that is for me, suffering and play, clearly I was not good at play. So I was like, okay, let's explore the other side of this duality. I have a friend of mine who's just filled with like bubbly joy. She's just the model of play. But when I was at this retreat in Hawaii that I was invited to, to do a talk on Fearvana, every time they would do these play activities, like hula hoops and stuff like that, just like silly play activities, I would run off in the corner and be like, I'm not, nothing to do with this. And so she saw me and dragged me to it. Right. And uh, (laughs) so she pushed it and it was beautiful. So I got to engage play and now I realized how I can actually tap into play, even in what, even in my running. So now like running is not always a tool to suffer. Running can be fun, right? (laughs) So even my work, like I explore the duality and now I will always be someone who will lean more towards the side of suffering. That works for me. I love it. It keeps me driven, but I can tap into the duality of play and suffering and find where on that line I work, you know? So I've I've found more play and I put play into my activity. The reality is for me, I don't take much play time off. I like being on. So when I, my, my break from work on my business is running and my break from running is working on my business. That works for me. I like my rest time is maybe playing with my puppy. He's absolutely adorable. So that's play time and, uh, <laughs> or watching a movie. I like that once in a while, you know? So I kind of, I take maybe that time once in a while, but like, I think finding that duality is really useful. But one thing you said earlier, I get what you mean about why do we want to engage struggle when life is so hard anyway? And what I, what I came to learn through all this life experience is that I think if you don't seek out a meaningful struggle, struggle is going to find you anyway. As you said, life can be hard anyway. So I call it your worthy struggle. Whatever your worthy struggle is, it doesn't have to be running. It doesn't have to be building a business. It could be playing chess. I have a friend who's about to be a grandmaster in chess, playing chess, writing movies, whatever. And I like to say that if you don't seek out a worthy struggle, struggle will find you anyway. So when you seek out a worthy struggle, it gives you the tools to navigate whatever else life throws at you. And it actually reduces the struggle of life because you found something worthy. And like, and that worthy struggle creates passion. It creates fuel. The reason I have this intensity and energy is because my worthy struggle drives me. I'm incredibly happy at what I do, you know? So although I'm intense, I'm happy at it because I found a worthy struggle. And that's why I think seeking out a worthy struggle is worth it. I mean, you guys know it's building a business. It's not easy. And I call it a worthy struggle. You might like, some people might, like, 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 might not like that term, but call it a challenge, call it leaping out your comfort zone, whatever we want to call it. But that path is how you evolve, you know, in every way, spiritually, professionally, personally, in every way. I find parenting to be a worthy struggle oh as well. God. Do you find that, honey? <laughs> Can't Every even imagine. That terrified me. Terrified me. Worthy struggle. For yeah. sure. it is, yeah. It's been, I would say, if anything has knocked me from, I would say, my center or myself or what I thought was myself, it is parenting for sure. Mm. You know, it's like, mm. Every day, like yesterday, the kid, we had a snowstorm here, got two feet of snow, and we didn't go outside because it was the weather wasn't great. And just by the end of the day at eight o'clock, I'm exhausted, you know, and I'm like, how? Because mm-hmm. my constant thought with parenting is how do I make this? Can I make this easier somehow? Like, is it possible? Mm-hmm. Because to have, a, have somebody attached to your leg for 12 hours. <laughs> 
<laughs> and like, how do you find the peace in that? Or how do I find this worthy struggle? Right. It's like, yeah, we yeah. should read Fairvana and I bet he would. <laughs> Maybe. I want to know. Well, should yeah. that be part of your path at yeah. some point, yeah. you'll be prepared yeah. from all the running. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was running as an escape from parenting. <laughs> <laughs> Which I do believe, like, there are people I know who, you know, will get, like, really into golfing or really into, like, doing Ironman triathlons or whatever. And I really mm. think it, it, like, who have young children, and I'm like, you're just doing that to have space from your kids, which but, is also totally fine. But I don't think, it, like, <laughs> I think it goes back to what you said earlier. It's not necessarily, because you started doing drugs when you were held? Uh, about 15, 16. So you moved to the United States at 13. So like yeah. to me, I'm like, what's the, like what happened there between those two years for you? That was like, I left my home, like all this stuff. But then also a lot of times it's, it's like, I'm not escaping from the parenting or the challenge or even anything that you've done, but it's, it's cause you mentioned this earlier. It's like, you know, it's escaping the stillness within ourselves, you know, instead of going out to mm. be with a kid, let's just stake for that moment. You know, it's like being with our kid for an hour. It's like, let me go run 50 miles to try to process it. But it's also like we're, instead of diving in to that, what that yeah. suffering could be for that hour. Does that make sense or no? Yeah. Well, the still like being, so I find at least personally that being with the kids is really more tapping into that stillness. Yeah. And I shared a couple weeks ago, somebody was interviewing me for a podcast mm -hmm. and I shared, I was really honest. I was like, to be honest, like sometimes I just find being with my kids boring. And so, mm -hmm. like, yeah. so I, I think that's because it's the stillness. It's, I think yeah. honest, the honest truth is it's not boring. It's the stillness. It's like just being there in that moment mm. without the mm. stimuli yeah. not being able to do what it is that i want to do yeah. just being right i mean that's to me that's yeah a struggle oh it is hard yeah yeah it's absolutely it's i can <laughs> yeah and i think that's why you need to balance it all out right like i mean mm -hmm. stress needs to balance with recovery I mean, even a long time ago, I used to be really good at, again, training and pushing myself physically, but I never committed to the recovery work of running. And the truth is, if you're not going to commit to the, the recovery, don't commit to the training is what I've come to learn. So now, even on a physical level, I commit to the recovery. You know, I do the recovery boots, electromuscular stimulation, contrast showers, all that stuff. So the thing is, I think that applies to anything in life, you know, whatever challenge you're facing, parenting, take that time for the stress and recovery cycle. But that's why I think both are needed. It's not just one or the other, you know? It's totally. It's back to the duality that you were speaking of. Yeah. How yeah. does this apply like when you're at war? Because like being at war in Afghanistan is much different than us having a three-year-old here, right? So obviously. Obviously. So how does that apply to being over there where you're just like any moment I could die? How does like the duality concept? Yeah. Uh, like how do you find the because like the mindset of being at war and realizing mm -hmm. you're walking around looking for bombs that could blow me up any moment, which is a very fearful thing to do. Cause you're like, okay, I could step in this, you know, or do, do you, is it, it the training that you go through in the military that just blocks that piece out to be mm -hmm. like kind of a rational, like the rational mind is just blocked out and trained mm -hmm. out of you or how does that work? I, yeah. I think, you know, in many ways, I think probably war is easier than parenting <laughs> because this is, this is a hard concept to grasp because the, the beauty is in war. And that's why I struggle coming home is war in war. Life is very simple. What matters out there is your men and the mission. It's very, very simple. You go out there, you fall. Like when all you have to worry about is living or dying, it's very simple. The complexities of this world, there's so many things. I mean, you guys are entrepreneurs with kids, there's so many pieces. There's so many moving parts out to that, right? In war, it was, I just had to follow the task. When my officers told me to go do a mission, you go out there, you're tired, you struggle. Of course, it has its own kind of adversity, but there's the simplicity to it that makes it very addictive. Not to mention there's a, a adrenaline rush to that experience that makes it hard to adjust to the mundaneness of life. You know, you get addicted to it, which is why so many people struggle when they come back from war. People, it's not just PTSD kind of thing. It's there's many elements to that. One is that war is a very addictive force. It's 
a very addictive force. And so you get, you get hooked on that, which makes it really hard to leave, which is why one reason I used to run away to go ski across an ice cap, because when you're spending a month in minus 40 degrees, dragging a sled, again, your life is simple. Hmm. You have a structure, you follow it. Your life is simple. You're not worried about the bills to pay. I mean, even like something simple, when I came back from war, I was like, Oh, I've got to talk to girls again. Like I was that scary. You know, I didn't worry about that in Iraq. <laughs> I had to pay bills again. Like everything was like this scary world you're entering again. And you know, that's hard. It was so, whereas in war, it was like, all right, you know, you live in you and plot to mention the mindset I went to war with again. Cause I felt like I shouldn't have been alive at that point. Cause I should have died with my friends. So I kind of went to war with, I mean, I gave away all my stuff as if I'm probably not going to come back. Like, and I, I very, I get it. It's a very naive way to approach war that you can control who lives and who dies because you know, random gunshot kills, whoever it's the nature of war. But I was like, if I'm going to, if somebody's going to die out there, let it be me, not somebody else. Uh, this made it very awkward when I came back and had to get all my stuff back from people. <laughs> I'm back from the war. So I need my stuff back. But uh, <laughs> guess what? But you know, so that, that, so there's a simplicity to that experience that makes it kind of beautiful in a way. And, and all I've done now is relearn to over time. It took me a while to figure this out is to replicate that simplicity in my business, to make it structured, to follow the systems. And I mean, it's still not easy. There's complexities, but when you can reduce it to this like clarity of purpose, to the simplicity, it makes it that much easier. I mean, that's why I always say it's much harder for the people back home than it was for us. Like my mom and my family and people who love me, they're going through the constant unknowns, you know? We're in it. So our mind, our consciousness is consumed by the experience. People back home, it's just constant unknowns. And that's really hard. I mean, as you can tell, I've been a nightmare of a child to my parents. <laughs> a nightmare. <laughs> Yes, a, a great growth opportunity for them. Uh, so, <laughs> That's why I tell them, I'm like, this, is, this is for you. See, struggle makes you grow. I did this so you can grow. It's your work. This is what you do. This, exactly. is, your, this is your medicine in the world. This, this is my what gift. You do. <laughs> I want to know a little bit more about the simplicity in terms of your business and how that's a conversation we've been having a lot about in yeah. our business. It's a conversation we have ongoing. I have this book coming out called Do Less, and it's really about simplicity and strength streamlining mm -hmm. so we can have more joy and more ease in our lives. So yeah. I would love to hear about a, if you could just run us through what your business is a little bit more detail for, for those. Yeah. Listening, and then also how you've been employing that simplicity. Sure. So initially for a long time, my business was just one-on-one -on -one coaching. I've gotten out of that now. And now what I'm doing is I'm, I'm selling and creating a bunch of digital information products, like digital courses around how I got media for my launch, a personal development course as well. So creating different marketing funnels that are starting to get very automated and selling those. And the next phase is really building out a world under this concept of Fearvana. So I'm creating a Fearvana Academy, Fearvana Fitness, Fearvana Festivals, Fearvana Retreats. I have a nonprofit called the Fearvana Foundation. Uh, we're starting a clothing line, Fearvana Clothing Line. It's a whole ecosystem under this concept. But so that's kind of where, where the next phase is where I'm going. Like what Richard Branson is divergent, I want to be to Fearvana, but in the space of well being. That's where we're evolving into. How I create simplicity is I'm a big believer in systematizing everything. So I have systems for everything. Now, running, like creating a, a funnel for a course, as you guys know, is hundred different moving parts, right? Like there's so many different parts. So I'm always thinking about what's the next immediate step. Like running is again, my metaphor for it. Like in running, I know that if I put one step in front of them, no matter how, no matter how much I got to suffer, I'll get to the target that I want to get to. Right. So I'm always reducing it to the next simple step and then creating systems around it. So I have my phone here that I, that I use this app. I think it's called Todoist. Um, is that what it's called? Yeah. Todoist. And I create checklists and systems for everything. So I have a morning routine. I have a night routine. I have a system for how I shower. I'm like, because again, I take it to another level, <laughs> just how I roll. So I have systems for that. I have like every, every night I map out what are my top five things to get them done the next day. Then I work in one hour shifts, 10 minute break. Those are all structured during each shift. I know exactly what I'm going to do. So this is how I skied across the ice cap too. Like I would ski for one hour, stop for 10 minutes to drink water and eat food, then keep going. So I work in these chunks. And so every day I know exactly what I got to do. So the, the, the long-term goal is in the back vision, but my targets are broken into 90 day goals. Then I have, what are my one month goals? What are my one week? What are my one day? So everything is structured. When I wake up, it's like, Oh, what do I got to do? I don't have to think. So really the, the idea of it is you want to remove thinking. <laughs> totally. Remove thinking process exactly <laughs> so think your way into removing thinking. yeah exactly I'm not thinking kill the, okay. <laughs> kill the thought <laughs> so first <laughs> you engage consciousness 
to map out your world and then you shut off consciousness by following the system. Plan out every day, follow those structures, and then just, you don't have to think. And then you also, the value in doing this is you don't let your feelings dictate your life. If you let your feelings dictate your life, you are setting yourself up for failure because you're going to have days where you don't feel like it. And this kind of comes with experimentation and practice to feel like, okay, to get a sense of, okay, what do I really need the rest of the, you know, that comes with experimentation. You got to play, figure out that things. But once you do it, then you will not let your feelings dictate like how you're going to go. I have days where I wake up. I don't want to run. I don't want to work. It's like, I don't care what my feelings say. I'm going to, because the structure says that's what I have to do. Right. You create constraints. Constraints are beautiful and you follow them no matter what. That's very military. What? So, <laughs> I have a question for you, Kate, based off that yeah. statement. Because in our business, I feel like it's the complete opposite of what's, you know, systems and structure. But like, yeah. if, don't let feelings dictate your life. And I, I let my feelings dictate everything. I know. <laughs> this is such a good conversation because it's just like, <laughs> the way I approach life is so different from you. And so I'm fascinated. Like, wow, that's just, it's amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> because it, it I, is. It, it's when Kate and I first started dating yeah. or when we first got together in 2011, like I would operate more, we'll call this the masculine approach. Like you're just very masculine, Kate, the feminine approach, right? It's like a masculine feminine energy approach. And so I was much more of the masculine energy. And since being around Kate has brought out this mm. little feminine energy piece in me that allows this. And that's yeah. the whole experience I went through at the end of last year being sick it was to get more in touch with this stillness and silence and kind of what you're mm. speaking about now. And I thought about this, this is totally random in the middle of this thought, but like you're about to go away for seven days in pitch blackness. And like, that's what you literally use for torture in prisons. But uh, yeah. And so my friend was like, yeah, you know, they torture people like that. That's what you were saying about like, it could be, you could be doing the same thing and it's how are you doing it? Right. So you're not doing it from a place Correct. of torture. Because there's a lot of, yeah. you know, you hear stories of people that got in the hole and then, or it's in movies or something. I don't know if I've ever, yeah. they talk about the enlightenment. Yeah. yeah. So it is this, because it, for me, like I have been confused. Like it's been hard for me to adjust of being this very, having no feelings because in a relationship, she wants feelings, right? You know, so yeah. it's, it, it is, I think it's. No, I, um, I want feelings. You do, right? <laughs> <laughs> in a partnership for me you want feeling that's, that's no, right and I, and I fully get that and I get that so kind of like the caveat to what I said is that I'm not saying feelings are bad like <laughs> uh, like I mean I think again it's kind of that duality the masculine feminine energy I mean like I so I say you don't let your feelings dictate your actions but I'm the kind of guy I'll cry in like the stupidest romantic comedies like they did I forget which one they did and I'll start tearing up in like this scene in like Pearl Harbor and I'm like what the hell's wrong with me right and people I listen to Kenny G sometimes while I run you know so it's like this there's this paradoxical nature to me and so feel so I think the, the point is that you know it's it's good to like because again I used to run away from emotions now I'm like an extremely emotion cry at the silliest movie kind of person and uh, yeah million dollar arm was on TV the other day and like the end scene where they throw a baseball I'm like tearing up like, what the hell's wrong with me you know but uh, <laughs> but like I allow myself to feel and so the thing is you just don't what my point was though like when if I set a target I'm not going to let how I feel dictate whether or not I move toward that target right like it's like running I'm going to I know in a long run I'm going to have moments where I absolutely hate this I feel I'm in pain I don't want to keep going but I will not let that feeling control how I keep moving forward that's what I mean. So feelings are not like bad. <laughs> I think they're worth engaging. They're worth feeling. And I mean, even for me, like I think the great way to engage feelings is to consciously and proactively choose which emotions you want to target and be with them fully. So like, I'll give you an example. Today, I sometimes consciously watch war movies knowing they will make me cry. I'll watch scenes from Hacksaw Ridge or Black Hawk Down or like Band of Brothers. And every time I do, they tear me up, tear me up but I do it because I like experiencing the intensity of that feeling. I like opening the door of that feeling as opposed to numbing myself out, which I did for a long time, right? I used to run away from war movies. And if I watched war movies, I would drink myself stupid and I would just run away from whatever feeling showed up. I wanted to stay numb. That obviously wasn't healthy. So I now engage the feeling and be with how with it. So I have, mo I have triggers that I can set up literally. Like I think music is a very powerful way too. like, I have different songs that will put me in any state. I choose angry, intense, happy, sad, guilty, like any state I choose based on a certain song. So I think it's really cool to actually proactively engage the feelings you want to engage. So especially for what you were saying, Mike, like, you know, whatever, whatever emotions, whatever feelings you want to engage, find a way to proactively engage it. So you're not like being at the effect of the world when the feeling hits. 
You're actually choosing to engage it and you can train yourself around that feeling to be with it so much more fully and so much more in a present way. That, that was really a valuable exercise for me to consciously engage that feeling of intensity that I feel when related to like war movies and stuff like that. Yeah. Hmm. I love the way you talk about that. That's amazing. And now how do you relate that? So t- talk us through how you help people with, let's say the information age that we're in right now in the social media and you get, I mean, the triggering that happens when you read something immediately and like, it's a lot of headline stuff that these days, right? And we don't know what the behind the scenes world is happening. And mm-hmm. we might find the facts like two days later. Yeah. So the emotions take over in that moment. So what recommendation do you have for people to stop, you know, be chill for a moment and then actually process what's going on? If that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does make sense. I think part of it is you want to be, uh, you want to be conscious in how you're controlling which stimuli is entering your mind, right? So that means part of it is getting off all this stuff and being very conscious about what's, what we are allowing to enter. That's part of it. Another part is when you're so consumed by your worthy struggle, then nothing else matters. Like the more, cons- that's why I said, if you, don't, if you don't seek out that worthy struggle, struggle will find you anyway. Because if, if you're so consumed in your mission, then the other stuff won't affect you because your mission is everything, right? So that's another part of it. Another part of it is yes, stuff will show up. So how do you navigate that? The single most important thing you can do, this, this space is your destiny. Viktor Frankl puts it beautifully. I don't know if you've read, if you guys have read Man's Search for Meaning. Yeah. Yeah. One of the most powerful books, right? So he was a psychiatrist. Put it back on the list. (laughs) It's really good. Game changer, that book. I mean, it's, I I reread it. I read it in Iraq. I reread it after my divorce and it's guided me through some dark times. But for anybody listening, he was a psychiatrist who survived the Holocaust in many concentration camps. It's a very powerful book. And he says something in the book, which I think is one of the most powerful quotes. He says, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space lies our power to choose our response, and in our response lies our growth and our freedom. That space is everything. And the stimulus is not just an external stimulus, it's your emotional stimulus as well. Neuroscience and spirituality have both shown we don't control what first shows up in our brain. So if somebody came into this room right now with a gun, my brain would automatically register fear. I'm not choosing to say I'm I'm afraid, my brain's registering fear, right? That's why there are no bad or good emotions, they just show up. What matters is in the space between the emotion and who you choose to be outside of it and who, what, what action you choose to take, that conscious higher self. That space is everything and you have to play in that space. So meditation is a way to figure out that space. Simply going, being aware more often, like practicing meta, you know, going meta. I have this, I have a phone note on my phone that says relentlessly think in the meta. What that means is meta is rising above the thing to look at the thing. So you'll constantly go with the experience. Okay, what's actually happening now? You know, processing the experience. Another practice that I've started taking on is lucid dreaming, which is, uh, if you're not familiar, lucid dreaming is essentially becoming conscious in your dream state. In order to do that, you have to become more conscious in your awake state. So throughout the day, I'm, I'm pausing to acknowledge that, okay, I'm creating this dreamlike experience. And by doing that, I'm going meta. I'm recognizing there's a space between what's automatically showing up and who I am choosing to be. What is the dream I'm creating in relationship to this experience of life? So that space will be your destiny. That's how I navigate the pain of running because there's a space between the pain I'm feeling and my desire to keep moving forward, right? That like literally that space is everything. The more you train in mastering that space and first acknowledging there is a space because a lot of us don't, right? We get angry, we react or whatever it may be. We don't even feel, we don't even know that there is a space. We let our emotions dictate our actions. But when you recognize that there is a space, And the more you train in it, the more you get to choose what you will do in that space. And as he says, that space will determine your growth and your freedom. Mm. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just taking that in. (laughs) Because it is is so true. I mean, that's the practice of self-awareness. But I like how you described it because it's different than what I've heard before. And it's really training Mm. ourselves to be conscious in that space. And that is really where the gold is of, I think, a life well-lived and of, you know, yeah. being a good person <laughs> and being, you know, yeah, absolutely, being, absolutely. Being powerful mm-hmm. and also turning your suffering into, into bliss. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah that's amazing. Concept, sorry. I just want to share this. I think it'll really help in navigating this space. It's a concept that I call second dart syndrome. So Buddha says that we are all stabbed by the two darts of suffering. The first dart is the one we don't control. So if I stub my toe against a door, the pain in my toe is the first dart. The second dart is when I'll say things like, this door is stupid. Why do bad things happen to me? God hates me. All of these things, right? 
and it's the same thing with emotions. We have an emotion like fear, and then we'll say things like, I shouldn't feel fear. Like I remember once when I took my now ex-wife climbing and she felt fear on this climb. I felt no fear. And so after the climb, she was like, why did I feel fear? You didn't feel fear. I'm weak. If I feel this fear now, how will I ever succeed? How will I ever do these things? And you go into the spiral of that self-talk, right? And that's what I call second dart syndrome. The reality is the only reason my brain did not feel fear, not because I'm stronger, but because I had climbed much harder routes. So my brain said, this thing is not a risk. It's easy for you. Only because my brain had more references. But the reality is whenever an emotion shows up, the more you can just be with it and acknowledge that as the first dart and not let yourself spiral into that second dart syndrome that I call that self-talk about judging the emotion and just noticing. And so constantly noticing it's, this is the second dart. Okay, let me just feel fear and then I can choose what I want to be outside that fear. So that concept of second darts has been really helpful for me and many people have shared it with it, which is I wanted to add that here is just being present to the second dart of suffering and allowing yourself not to let yourself go into that negative. And we all know that negative spiral of self-talk, right? With whatever. I mean, I felt it even with my guilt. I was like, I shouldn't feel guilty because I haven't suffered in the war. What right do I have to feel guilty? You know, and there's that downward spiral. Then I just said, okay, I feel guilty. Great. What can I do about it? Yeah. Well, I think that's what you just shared about the second dart syndrome is really, for me, it's really like the key to, for the way you were describing going after suffering. Now I can really see why. Now it makes sense. Like if you are in a way instigating the first dart, then that gives you training ground and endless opportunity to then practice consciousness to not have the second dart is that i mean that's kind of what you're doing i actually didn't even think about it. that's awesome yeah that puts it in a cool context for me as well because i really like how you said that that makes a lot of sense yeah i don't know if i necessarily put it in that context in my own way but that's absolutely true <laughs> yeah that engaging that and seeing what shows up so you can control that space yeah, yeah that's what you're training awesome. for that's really yeah. cool yeah like on that rowing machine i have it's a nightmare so when you, when you get in, you know, I think you do crossfit, right, Mike? So you know what a terrible machine that is, the devil's work. But uh, <laughs> as much as I can. As you know, you get... <laughs> one of the guys in CrossFit calls the rowing machine, the air bike, and the skier, <laughs> those are the devil's equipment. Like all three yeah. of them. Because he was doing 100%. a workout with all three of them. Just like, the salt bike is, I, is, is so... It's so hard. So brutal. Oh, yeah. So brutal. So I'll brutal. do the skier. Devil's twice I, a bit, right? I like the rower better. Although the other day I did a 20 minute row barefoot, which I would not recommend. That was, yeah, that was suffering because then I ended up with all the blisters. Like, I don't know. It just wasn't smart. So don't add in that layer of suffering. It's unnecessary. That's level one. Is that level one, but it was stupid. Yeah. That's all because then it was suffering for days after. That. Now you won't do that again. So no. You, you so I learned. <laughs> okay. So, so good lesson. Yeah. It was a great lesson. It was a great lesson. So, all right. So what's next for you? I mean, is is your vision? What like? Can you talk about? You talked a little bit about your vision for your company, which I love, and I so see that for you. And I would love to know. And you talked about that you're really kind of tackling stillness. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else that you want to share that's your growth edge right now? I mean, I feel like every second of every day is your growth edge. So there might not be anything else. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, stillness is again, the big one. And the other one that I, and I get, this is going to sound maybe a little crazy, but the other one that I still want to go deeper into is exploring the intensity of the human experience in a more deeper way. So like, for example, what I'm doing in a few weeks here in India is I'm going to visit these rat picking colonies. They're called rat picking colonies. They're supposedly the poorest of the poorest places in the world. Like they're, they're called rat picking because they're living around these rat slums. And apparently the intensity of this experience, the smells, everything is so, I mean, when I spoke to the person who's, who kind of runs a nonprofit there, she was like, I just want to warn you, it's a lot to take in. And I was like, you know, I've been through some life. And she's like, no, I don't care what you've been through. She was still kind of like, no, it's a lot to take in. So to me, the value in navigating that is one, I want to serve these places through my foundation, but I also feel like it's important, like again, this nothing necessarily for everybody, but like to me, I want to navigate the intensity of these human experiences to see where it takes me in my own evolution, because I think staying present to the human suffering in that degree will keep me more driven in my work to help our human family. So kind of going deeper into navigating the intensity of human suffering is one part of it, not just not within myself, but externally. 
and stillness, of course, is a big one. And then I'm continuing many, uh, many more adventures, like a running, like different runs that I have planned on. I want to run across India and eventually I want to run from Cairo to Cape Town and across Africa to support worthy causes through that. And then the big, the big fear for me is again, building this massive empire. Like I have no clue how to build something like that with all these employees. And it's an unknown, you know, but again, I'm, I love embracing the unknown and I have partners and building a team around that. So that's a big unknown for me is creating that world of fearvana that I'm now venturing into in that space. So yeah, I'm sure I'll learn a lot through that unknown as well. And that, that to me is more daunting. Like, I mean, even while writing my book, I used to go avoid writing by going running a marathon. So it'd be easier to go running than to build this thing uh, <laughs> in the complexities of that. But that's my next worthy struggle. So I just got to stay present of that. Yeah. That's beautiful. I'm really excited to follow along the mm-hmm. journey. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited and nervous. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And I have no doubt that you'll do what it does, beautifully. I know we're going to wrap up here soon. What does stillness, because you've mentioned a few times now, like what does that look like to you? I guess it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not doing anything. It's, uh, it's just being with, the con- being with the self, being with the consciousness. Like the reason why I think the darkness is more appealing than going into a silent retreat is because you're cutting off one of the most important stimuli through which we engage with the world, right? Visually. And so in a silent retreat, I could still see things and my mind is seeing these things and thinking about these things and processing these things. In darkness, your soul becomes a mirror to itself. The only thing you're seeing is nothing ultimately. So your soul becomes a mirror to itself. And I think that's the ultimate form of stillness ultimately to just be so with you and see what shows up. You know, because I also don't think that there's like a self to find. I think there's a self to create. So I think when, when something shows up, you get to use that in service of the self you want to create. It's not that I'm finding myself. I'm just tapping into something new within that allows me to create a, a, the next evolution of myself. Does that make sense? Yep. Totally. <laughs> so where should people follow along with you and engage with what you're doing to follow the adventure and learn from you? Yeah, uh, fearvana.com is one place. Instagram is probably the social media outlet I use the most on Fearvana. And the book is Fearvana on Amazon. 100% of the profits of the book are going to support these causes. So we were first supporting Liberia. We've supported nonprofit here in India that helped uh, victims of sex trafficking. And, and down the road, we're going to support Uganda and the school we're working with out there as well. So all the profits from the book go to charity as well. Beautiful. As someone who has been all over the world and continues, what message do you have for people? Cause I know here in the United States, like passport ownership is very low compared to other countries, et cetera. Like for a lot of people that haven't been outside of, let's say United States, Canada, Australia, mm-hmm. New Zealand, like the Western world, like, yeah. Like what message do you have for listeners that are just wondering about what's happening across the planet? I think there's nothing more beautiful, like travel is such a beautiful way to, ultimately if we're looking at it from our own self perspective to enhance ourself, because it puts you into a new world. And the only way you can grow is, to by, is by questioning your current paradigms. And traveling is a way to, uh, to explore new paradigms of the world, you know? And so it, it enhances your own growth. And it also shows you how we're really one big tribe, you know? No, it doesn't matter where people are from the world. They kind of, at, at the very core, we go through the same struggles, have the same joys, and we're just part of one big human family, you know? Which, like, I mean, in Liberia, for example, I think I might have shared this with you guys offline, which is a great story of how we're one big human family. After my run out there and the filming the documentary, I got really close to the cameraman. And I found out that his son needed, his five-year-old son needed heart surgery. And he didn't have the means to take care of it in Liberia. So through my foundation, we sponsored him. He came and stayed with me here in India for one month. His son had the heart surgery. Now he's back in Liberia and his son is able to now play soccer again. And he could never do this because he essentially had a hole in his heart. And it was one of those, it was like an issue that he could have died tomorrow or died 10 years down the road, you know? But now he had the surgery and now he's back in Liberia. And it was such an amazing story of how here I am, this Liberian family, this Indian U.S. Marine guy joined in Liberia to meet, and we became one through this journey. And he now came to India. That was the first time his family had ever left the country, right? And exploring the new worlds. And so by doing all these things, we get to see that we're just this one tribe, you know? Whatever our race, our nationality, our, our religion, all of it, we're one. So I think that's also a key to our own spiritual evolution. So even in a personal way, because if we're just looking at it from what do we gain out of it, that oneness is, is something beautiful. 
And I think it also is a tool for service. So travel is like one of the most valuable learning tools you can possibly experience. I mean, even after Iraq, I had four Marine buddies come to visit me in Israel. My family was staying at the time. This was the first time they had left the country on a vacation. Iraq was obviously not a vacation. So they had been exposed and they actually came back with a little bit of a disgust for America because they were like, they were like American people are, don't understand life in a different way. Israelis all serve in the military. So there was a kind of different, so they, they got new perspective about their own world that they could then bring back into their life and that perspective is how we can do different things we can create a better life for ourselves you know hmm. yeah absolutely well i just think you're fascinating thank you so much for your time <laughs> so much for, no this was a pleasure really on good. all the scheduling and um, I this was- the work that you're doing in the world i've learned a lot today thank you um, so thank you thank loved you our so conversation yeah thanks a lot <laughs> bye take care So for years, I've been thinking about holding and hosting a high-level mastermind, paid mastermind, for a small group of women who really want to go deep over a long period of time to take their businesses to the next level. I've had the opportunity to be in close conversation with a lot of business owners who are further along in their journey than me and kind of learn things behind the scenes while we're making eggs in the morning or like curled up on the couch with tea at night. And those opportunities have been so valuable for our business growth. And I want to offer that kind of small, intimate, going deep opportunity. And so I finally decided there were a couple of signs. It is time and I am officially opening doors to the Origin Incubator. So this is for entrepreneurs who identify as female, who are well established. So you have consistent revenue, you have consistent customers, you more or less know what your offerings are. And it's high level, and it's going to be small, only 10 women, and some of those spots are already filled. So if this sounds good to you, and you would like to work with me quite closely in 2019, and also have an opportunity to work a little bit with Mike throughout, head over to origincollective.com forward slash incubator. So again, that's origincollective.com forward slash incubator. And you can learn more about the program and you can learn about how you can apply. I hope to see you in the program.